It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, and it's time for yet another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, as hobbyists, we spend this huge amount of time and money and energy attempting to create you know, the ideal aquarium for our fishes. And let's face it, pretty much no matter how we put together our tank, no matter how well we aquascape it, no matter how much or how little thought and effort we put into it, our fishes are actually ultimately going to adapt to it. It's just reality. They'll find the places that they're comfortable hiding in, the places they like to forage, to sleep in, and to spawn. It doesn't matter if your aquascape consists of, you know, carefully selected you know, branches, roots, seed pods, rocks, plants, driftwood, whatever, or it's simply a couple of clay flower pots and a few pieces of egg crate, your fishes are going to make it work. That's what fishes do. It's what they've done for eons. And as aquarists, we've collectively and admirably done for a century or so, what we've, what we've done has been to try to create optimum conditions for the fishes that we keep. That's what we do, right? This includes both the physical, structural, and chemical environment. Now, we've talked a lot about the chemical environment here vis-a-vis our botanical method, blackwater aquariums, stuff like that. And so today, let's just think for a few moments about the physical structural environment that we create for our fishes and why. When we're planning an aquascape or an, an aquarium in general, we often spend an enormous amount of time selecting the right materials, you know, rocks, wood, in our case, botanicals, leaves, all that kind of stuff to get the right feel for our aquarium or scape. This is probably the most enjoyable and interesting phase of an aquarium build for a lot of people. But take yourself out of the, you know, I'm going to enter this one in the aquascaping contest and place in the top 500 in the world mindset for just a second and put yourself in the mind of a fish. Yeah, think like a fish for a second. I mean, sure, I'll bet that the fishes love living in those insanely cool contest aquascapes that you see all over the place, and I'm, I'm sure they enjoy it. However, those are mainly designed and constructed for the pleasure of humans, right? They're designed for our tastes, specifically for human judges who evaluate a design based on a set of specific criteria. You're like, Iwagumi looks really cool, but I'll hazard a guess that you won't find many of these submerged Stonehenge features in the natural streams and rivers of the world. I'm just going to go out on a limb and kind of make that speculation. So what about considering just how the fishes interact with the aquascape that you create? My suggestion, again, think like a fish a little bit more. Really, it might be fine of fun and educational to think about where your fishes are found in natural streams, lakes, and rivers that they come from and kind of work backwards. I mean, fishermen have been doing this for eons, right? Why not hobbyists? So it makes perfect sense because, well, we have a pretty fair collective understanding of how fishes interact with their environment, don't we? I think we do. Let's look at some of the features and natural bodies of water where fishes are commonly found. This might give you some insight into how to incorporate them into an aquascape. Now, I don't have to discuss flooded forests all that much because we've pretty much beaten the living shit out of that all over the place for years. 
Suffice it to say, my obsession with those habitats is pretty well-founded. They're filled with amazing features, ranging from tree trunks to root tangles to submerged terrestrial plants and leaf litter, all of which we can replicate in our aquarium in a pretty dramatic and effective functional and aesthetic fa uh, fashion. And then there's those flooded Pantanal meadows, which are essentially grasslands with low scrub brush and plants, which are flooded seasonally, providing this rich, diverse underwater habitat for tons of fishes. And these habitats, equally as engrossing as the flooded forests, are almost never replicated in the aquarium for reasons that I can't really understand. Perhaps, again, it's that dirty aesthetic which is throwing people off. Perhaps it's just a lack of, you know, seeing more of these features, and maybe that's what it is. Regardless, the fishes make use of the submerged grasses and the vegetation for foraging and spawning among like they have for eons. That's what they do. And of course, there are many features of streams and rivers that fishes love to congregate in. Think about how you might consciously incorporate some of them into your next aquascape. First off, let's look at a few real sweeping generalities. You know, I hate generalities, but let's do that anyway. Fishes tend to live in areas where the food and protection is, as we've talked about many times before. Places that provide protection from stronger current and above and below water predators. Places where they can create territories, interact, spawn, and defend themselves. Bends and streams and rivers are particularly interesting places because the swifter water movement will typically carry food and the fishes seem to know this. And if there's a tree branch, a trunk, or a big rock or a group of rocks to break up the flow, there's generally going to be a larger congregation of fishes present. So the conclusion here is that, at least in theory, if you design your scape to have a higher open water flow rate and include some features like rocks and large branches, you'll likely see the fishes hanging in those areas. Now, in situations where you're replicating a faster flowing stream environment, think about creating some little rock pockets, perhaps on one side of the aquarium, to create, you know, areas of calmer water movement. Your fishes will typically orient themselves facing upstream to catch any food particles that happen on by. That's what they do. So from a design perspective, if you want to create a cool rock feature that your fishes will likely gather in, orienting the flow towards it would be a good way to accomplish this in the aquarium. Now, among the richest habitats for fishes in streams and rivers are so-called drop-offs, in which the bottom contour takes a significant plunge and increases in depth. These are often caused by current over time, or even the accumulation of rocks, leaves, and fallen trees, which dam up the stream a little bit. Fishes are often found in drop-offs in significant numbers because these spots afford depth, which thwarts the hunting efforts of those pesky birds. It typically provides slower water movement, numerous nooks and crannies, which they can forage, hide, and spawn, and just generally a more restive, you know, dining area for fishes to have to contend with strong currents. From an aquascaping perspective, this gives you a lot of cool opportunities. If you're saddled with one of those seemingly ridiculously deep tanks, a drop-off could be a perfect subject to replicate. And of course, there's even commercially made drop-off tanks now, which I thought was kind of funny. But with a little observation of natural habitats, some planning, and a little bit of creativity, there's really no limit to how effective a recreation of this habitat you could accomplish in the aquarium. Overhanging trees are really common in jungle and rainforest areas, as we've discussed many times. Fishes will tend to congregate under trees for the dimmer lighting, the thermal protection, and food, which is insects and fruits and seeds and stuff that fall off the trees into the water, that alochthonus input that we've talked about so many times here. And of course, if you're talking about a leaf litter or botanically influenced aquarium, a rather dimly lit shallow tank could work out really well to represent this type of feature. Lots of leaves, pieces of wood, and a sort of a tree root-like configuration and some seed pods would complete a really cool look for you. 
For a cool overall scene, you could introduce some riparian plants to simulate the banks of the stream as well. It's a real rich habitat with a lot of opportunities for the creative scaper. Now, so why not create an analogous stream or river feature that's known as an undercut? You're like, what's an undercut? Well, it's pretty much the perfect hiding spot for fishes in a stream or river. Undercuts occur where the currents have cut a little cave-like hole in the rock or the substrate material near the shore. Not only does this feature provide protection from birds and the above water predators, it gives fishes sort of express access to deeper water for feeding and escaping in water predators. Trees growing nearby add to the attractiveness of an undercut for fishes for reasons that we just talked about. So subdued lighting would work really well here. You could build up a significant undercut with lots of substrate, rocks, and some wood. Sure, you'd have to, you know, contend with some reduced water capacity, but the effect overall would be really cool. Now, leaves, the sort of jumping off point of our botanical obsession, form a very important part of these stream habitats. They fall from the trees, accumulate in the water, and work their biological magic. We've talked about that so many times in this uh, podcast. It's probably not even worth talking about again, but I'm going to mention it again. <laughs> it's known by science that the leaf litter and the community of the aquatic animals that it hosts is of great importance in assimilating energy from forest primary production, i.e. growing into the blackwater aquatic ecosystem where, you know, fishes consume it. It also functions as a mean to preserve the nutrients that would be lost to the forest, which would inevitably occur if all the material that fell into the streams was simply washed downstream. So when it accumulates, the fishes, the crustaceans, and the insects that live in leaf litter and feed on the fungi, the detritus, and the decomposing leaves themselves are really important to the overall rainforest habitat. In the aquarium, leaf litter and botanicals certainly perform a similar role in helping to sequester these materials. As we've talked about before briefly, another interesting thing about leaf litter beds is that they actually have structure and even longevity. In several studies I've read on the subject, the accumulations of leaves in various streams are documented to have existed in the same locations for years, even decades, to the point where scientists actually have studied the same ones for extended periods of time. They're known geographic features in the areas that they're found. Some litter beds form in what stream ecologists call meanders, which are stream structures that form when a moving water in a stream erodes the outer banks and widens its valley in the inner part of the river. And of course, the inner part of the river has less energy and deposits silt, or in our instance, leaves. There's a whole fascinating science to river and stream structure, and with so many implications for understanding how these structures and mechanisms affect fish population, occurrence, behavior, and ecology, it's well worth studying for aquarium interpretation. Now, did you get the part where I mentioned that the lower energy parts of the water courses tend to accumulate leaves and sediments and stuff? I suppose you did. There's other interesting structures and streams which we'd be well served to study and even replicate in our aquariums. Streams typically feature two interesting biotopes or at least habitats or, or niches that we haven't really discussed in much detail here and both of which are quite profoundly impacted by seasonal rains. Pools, with slower current and substrate covered mainly by deposits of leaf litter, detritus, and driftwood, and what are called riffles, which are defined as shallow sections of a stream with rapid current and a surface broken by gravel, rubble, or boulders with a moderately fast-flowing current and a mostly sandy bottom with you know, tree roots, driftwood, you know, and small rocks and pebbles. Home to fishes like darter kerosens and catfishes, these riffles are actually considerably more significant in the wet season when the obvious impact of higher water volumes are present. 
In the Amazon, for example, you'll find an unexpected abundance of some species quite familiar to us as hobbyists, like pyrolina, uh, hyphesobrycon, hemigramus, you know, tetras, and even some nanostomus, the, the pencil fishes. And of course, killies like ribulus. Um, ribulus are known for jumping. I lost quite a few to jumping. We'll get back to that in just a second. So here's an interesting thing. Some scientists have postulated that the higher presence of nocturnal predators in the pools adjacent to the more active riffles might increase the number of species that seek refuge in the riffles, duh, to avoid them. And fishes like rivulus, which usually live in more intermittent pools along the stream edges outside the mainstream channels, are normally found at night in these riffles. Well, reduction of stress. Indeed, survival. That's a pretty important thing in the wild, so I imagine it's equally as important in the aquarium. That's why fishes like these riffles. In the end, you can do all kinds of things. Design and build the aquascape or the aquarium that makes you happy. But if you're trying to recreate something a bit different and perhaps a bit more true to nature, you might want to take a little field trip to a nearby stream, a river, a creek, a lake, or whatever, where fishes and other aquatic animals reside and observe things from the perspective of how they interact with the features of the environment. You should get outside and do this once in a while. You'll definitely leave with some inspiration, ideas, and just maybe a slightly different perspective on aquascaping than you've previously had. Gaining a fresh perspective and new inspiration for your hobby is never a bad thing, right? So thinking like a fish is not such a crazy idea, is it? Yeah, the fishes do know where to go. You should too. Stay fascinated, stay inspired, stay creative, stay curious, stay unique, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman from Tin and Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.